Futurists are looking at the 21st century. And all myths that are uh, authentic maintain a kind of dreamlike, surreal quality. Computers are taking over now. By the year 2001, man will travel about in pneumatic papal tubes. It's time once again to step into the future. If you ever was a devil bought that in harness, better burn your man. I hear you, mama. It was winter. On the small holding near the crossroads, the pigs had been butchered, the meat salted down, and in the barrel room, the ale was coming along as it should. In far-off London, the tutor had recently married his sixth wife, Catherine Parr, but that curiosity made little practical difference out there on the Welsh border, in the small village of Duddleston, perched on a slight rise above a frost-whitened marsh. Night had come, early and cold, as it did at that time of year. The master of the small holding set aside his reading. The book, a rare luxury in a place like Duddleston, had been loaned to him by a friend, a fellow Oxford man. It was Erasmus. The master of that humble house had read Erasmus several times already, and met the man himself more than once at Oxford. But any book was a delight to an educated man, even one he almost knew by heart. And Oxford was a long time ago, so far in the past, it might as well be four hundred years. The master rose from his chair beside the fire, entered the small kitchen. Catherine had fallen asleep in a chair of her own, so near the flames in the kitchen hearth that he feared a stray spark might catch the girl's skirt alight. She was a good girl, hard-working, but not very bright. The master had taken her in earlier that year, for the poor child had no prospects now that her parents were both dead. The girl kept house for him in exchange for a roof over her head, and someday, when she was old enough, a modest dowry. He approached the hearth, intending to wake Catherine and send her off to bed. As he neared the girl's chair, a great lick of flame gouted from the fireplace. The master staggered back with a startled cry. No, it wasn't flame. It was green, green light. And it hadn't flared and receded again the way fire did. It was glowing steadily in the sandstone fireplace, emitting a faint, palpable pulse. The master lowered his hands from his face, stared in astonishment at the brilliant emanation in the hearth. Greener than holly leaves, the sharp, bright green of new grass. And Catherine hadn't moved, hadn't wakened. Though the strange, bright glow enveloped her, she slept on, undisturbed, unaware. Then the master noticed movement within the light, a shape, a figure. Squinting against the glare, he crept towards the fireplace. There was no heat from that green glow, only the radiant intensity of color. As he watched in horrified disbelief, a man stepped out of the fireplace, out of the light. He looked like an ordinary man, but taller, and his clothing was strange, 
reminiscent of trousers and shirt, but cut oddly and made of no cloth the master had ever seen. The man wore a vibrant green cape and carried in his hands an object, a small, smooth-sided box, and it was from this box that the light came. Fear not, the green man said. He greeted the master by name. You are starred to be a great man if you do not have fear, but keep your faith strong. The master never knew where he found the strength to speak. Be ye from the devil? No, friend. In fact, I am from God. Who be ye, then? The master pleaded. The green man smiled, amused. You may call me One. He strode to the master's kitchen, placed the object he carried on the table. The light throbbed out of the box and painted devilish shapes on the walls. I've come to bring you this, said one. It is important. What is it, the master demanded. I do not want it. Take it away. It is important, the green man said again. Then he returned to the fireplace, and in another flash of vibrant light, he was gone. The master stared at the eerily smooth rectangle on his table. It had a curious, transparent quality, as if it was both there and not. He approached, cringing, dazzled and sickened by the unnatural light. The nearer he came to the box, the more solid it seemed to become. He reached out with a tentative hand and touched it, tried to touch it, but his hand passed through it, into it, without making contact. He couldn't remove the object from his table, even if he tried. In the seat beside the hearth, Catherine slept on. The snowflakes tumbled fat and pale past the dark window pane, and the box of lights went on glowing, glowing, while the master stared into a bright green infinity of light. This is Future Saint of a New Era. I'm Libby Grant, and as far as I can tell, this is a true story. Autumn, 1984. The small town of Dodleston, not too far from Chester on the Welsh border, was an unassuming place for a mystery. The cost of living was low there, so the people in the homes were humble. Ken Webster was 29 that year, teaching economics to the sixth form students at Howarden School, some seven miles from Dodleston. Teaching was just a practicality, however. Ken's dream was to make it as a musician and he'd collected a pack of friends who shared that dream. So when he bought Meadow Cottage, one of four run-down brick row houses that faced Kinnerton Road earlier that year, Ken's first act was to convert the smaller of the two upstairs rooms to a recording studio. With the most urgent requirement met, he took his time renovating the rest of the house. And Meadow Cottage needed a lot of work. It had been scarcely touched since the row of four residences had been built sometime in the 18th century. 
Ken had hired an architect to add an L-shaped extension onto the back of the cottage, which now contained all the plumbing in the place. A cramped kitchen and a bathroom little bigger than a shoebox, with a narrow exit to the back garden. The architect had tapped out most of Ken's resources. He was a teacher, after all, so he did the rest of the work himself when time permitted, plastering the walls, refinishing the floors, and tinkering with the fixtures in the new extension. Meadow Cottage was full of the dust and permanent disorder of a long-term remodel project. As anyone who's dealt with such a project knows, it wasn't the easiest space to live in. It was especially trying to fit three people into such a small space. Ken lived with his girlfriend, Deb, a cute blonde with a flair not just for music, but for art. Deb was ten years younger than Ken. Maybe it was their age difference that often led to stormy quarrels, or maybe it was just the strain of living in a state of constant renovation. Regardless of their arguments, Ken adored Deb, and the couple often jammed together in the studio. Well, when they weren't too busy with the cottage. In addition to Deb, the cottage was also home to Nicola Bagley, Nick to her friends, a fellow educator who'd recently quit her job teaching English in several African countries and had returned to the UK broke and burnt out. Nick needed a place to stay while she got back on her feet. Ken allowed her to crash at Meadow Cottage, sleeping on a mattress in the upstairs music studio in exchange for helping with the renovations. It was a crowded house. And with the long, dark winter on the horizon, little opportunity to get outside, Ken had begun to wonder how he was going to survive his present circumstances. Nick was a bundle of energy, ricocheting around the cottage's interior, and Ken didn't want to lose his temper with his friend. He needed to find some way to keep Nick occupied when she wasn't painting the walls or scrounging up used furniture with which to decorate the cottage. He knew Nick was eyeing a career change. She had a dream of writing for the stage, cabarets mostly, and when Hardin School received a delivery of BBC microcomputers, Ken saw his opportunity. The BBC Micro was produced by Acorn beginning in 1978 and was the subject of a popular television series called The Computer Program, in which host Chris Searle, a popular broadcaster, learned how to use a home computer in real time. The Computer Program was broadcast on BBC, so the telecom giant funded the production of the Micro, brilliant marketing scheme, and supplied them to schools across the UK. The idea was to train British youth in computer literacy, prepare the young people of the United Kingdom for a technological future, give the nation a head start as the world advanced into a new frontier. As a teacher, Ken was entitled to sign out a micro whenever he wanted, take it home for personal use, which was intended to increase his own computer literacy, thus making him more effective while on the job. Ken didn't exactly have home study in mind. The micros at Hardin School came equipped with a program called Edward, a simple word processor, and he learned just enough about Edward to teach Nick how to use it. Once she was in, she was in. Nick now spent most of her free time and her restless energy composing scripts on the micro, writing the cabaret sketches she hoped would be her ticket to a new career. With Nicola thus contained, the winter might have passed all right, if not for the footprints on the wall. Nick was the first to notice the markings, and she called Ken and Deb into the kitchen to have a look. On the wall between the kitchen and bathroom, a line of distinct footprints ran from a small wall heater near the floor up to a corner of the ceiling. 
The footprints were made of the plaster dust that no amount of cleaning had entirely eradicated. They were small, about size five. One of you has been walking up the walls, Ken said. Those prints are too small to be mine. Not me, Nick answered. I think I'd know if I'd gone on that kind of a walk. Look, Deb said, there are six toes. Six toe marks on every print. They decided there must be a mundane cause. Maybe a six-toed child had strolled over the drywall before the contractors had hung it, and, sticky as children often were, some invisible residue remained to attract the dust. Nothing a coat of paint wouldn't fix. The following day, Nick brushed the plaster dust off the kitchen wall and painted it. The next morning, however, the prints were back. No, not the same prints, as this new track followed a different path up the wall, vanishing again at the ceiling. But they were made by the same feet, small, with that distinctive sixth toe. Nick was frightened. It was obvious that these were not the same footprints she'd painted over the day before. She murmured about packing her bags and leaving this haunted house, and while the prospect of having a little more room tempted Ken, he also knew his friend wasn't yet stable enough to live on her own. Calm down, he said. It's got to be a prank. After all, there was a new exit into the back garden, and Ken and Deb had several musician friends who often made use of the soundproofed studio upstairs. One of their mates had done it as a joke, trying to spook the residents of Meadow Cottage during the Halloween season. Ken was more certain he was dealing with a friend's prank two days later when he entered the kitchen to make his morning coffee and found a pyramid of cat food cans stacked against one wall. Instantly, he suspected John, a guitarist who made frequent visits, to use the studio he claimed, though John often spent more time chatting up Deb than recording. There was no doubt in Ken's mind that John had designs on his girlfriend. Maybe he'd taken it into his head to turn Meadow Cottage into a haunted house, scare Deb out of the cottage and into his own arms. Ken made a point now of keeping the back door locked. But even with increased security, the strange events kept coming. More items would appear each morning stacked in precarious towers. Cans and jars, spice containers, paper towels. A tense, quiet feeling filled the cottage now. Something wasn't quite right with the place. One night, all three residents woke in terror at the same moment. Nick convinced that a solid black shadow had passed the window of the studio, which happened to look out on the kitchen roof, while Ken and Deb were both certain that an unseen presence was with them in the bedroom. This state of affairs continued into December. The roommates decided one Sunday to go and visit one of Ken's friends in Howarden. This fellow lived on a sprawling old estate, which made a nice change from the cramped, potentially haunted quarters at Meadow Cottage. When they returned late in the evening, Ken made his usual security checks. The back door was still locked, and nothing had been stacked in the kitchen. But the BBC Micro, which took up most of the small kitchen table, was still on. Evidently, Nick had forgotten to shut it down when they'd left the cottage. Ken was curious. And hopeful. If Nick's scripts were coming along well, they might soon spell her ticket to financial security. He pulled up a file to snoop on what she'd written. One file in particular caught his attention. It was titled KDN, which was not the way Nick usually saved her work. As soon as Ken began reading the file, he knew Nick hadn't written it.
Ken, Deb, Nick. True are the nightmares of a person that fears. Safe are the bodies of the silent world. Turn, pretty flower, turn towards the sun, for you shall grow and sow. But the flower reaches too high and withers in the burning light. Get out your bricks! Pussycat Pussycat went to London to seek fame and fortune. Faith must not be lost, for this shall be your redeemer. It was so clearly not Nick's work that Ken showed the file to Deb, asked her if she'd written it. Deb just stared at the screen, beset by the same cold and instinctive fear that had gripped Ken. Nick planned to spend the Christmas holiday with her parents. The day before she left on a bus to Basingstoke, the stacking resumed in the kitchen. By now, the roommates had begun to notice that, apart from the initial footprints on the wall, most of the strange occurrences in the kitchen were centered around a pillar of exposed brick, part of a very old chimney structure. Ken wondered if the haunting would abate with Nick out of the house, which would prove she'd been behind the pranks all along. But in Nick's absence, things only got worse. One morning, a four-pack of lager was found disassembled and stacked into a tower. On the floor, the plastic ties that had once held the loggers together were found blackened and melted. Whoever was haunting this house was now playing with fire. The prank had taken a turn from annoying to dangerous, and Ken was starting to get angry. The day before he and Deb threw a Christmas party, long, looping scrawls of white chalk appeared on the brick pillar, but they assumed it was the doing of one of their guests who popped by before the party to drop off some necessary items, and they thought nothing more of it. There wasn't another BBC micro in the cottage until early February of 1985. Nick was back by then. She'd had a productive Christmas holiday, having made several contacts on the cabaret scene. She was eager to get back to work on her scripts, so Ken obliged by signing out another computer from Howard and School. After several unremarkable days, the three roommates set off for a drive through the Welsh countryside and returned that evening to find that once more, the computer had been accidentally left on. Maybe John snuck in and left another creepy poem, Nick said, joking. She approached the micro and reached to shut it off, but she paused. There's something here. There's a file I didn't make. Look at this, Ken. Ken and Deb crowded around the table with Nick. The mystery file was titled Reate, R-E-A-T-E, and Ken at once perceived the source of the name. When the program Edward was opened, several options appeared on the screen, the first of which was Create, one needed only to type the letter C, and a fresh file would open, ready for composition. Someone had typed the letter C, and then had gone on typing the rest of the word, unaware of how the commands worked in Edward. This message was markedly different from the first. Notably, it appeared to be written in some earlier form of English, and it was nothing like the strange poem they'd first found. I write on behalf of many. What strange words thou speak, although I must confess that I hath also been ill-schooled. Sometimes methinks alterations are somewhat barful, for they break many asleeps in mine bed. Thou art a goodly man who hath fanciful woman who dwell in mine home. 
I hath no want to affray. For only sith mine half-witted antic has ripped a twain mind-bound hath I been wreathed tonight. I hath seen many alterations, lastly charge house and thou home. Tis a fitting place, with lights which the devil maketh, and costly things that only mine friend Edmund Gray can afford, or the king himself. Twas a great crime to hath bribed mine house. L. W. The next day at the school, when the students were at their lunch break, Ken nervously approached his boss, Peter Trinder, head of the sixth form. Trinder was thoroughly educated, an Oxford graduate, knowledgeable about many diverse subjects. He'd been Ken's English teacher when Ken had attended Hardin School himself. Most importantly to Ken, Trinder had an open mind and was approachable. If anyone could help him get to the bottom of this obvious hoax, it was Peter Trinder. A little embarrassed, he knew the whole thing sounded far-fetched, Ken explained what had been going on at Meadow Cottage since the fall. He showed Trinder a printout of the second message, the one signed L.W. Three words in particular stood out to Ken as unusual, wreathed, charge house, and bribed used in this particular context. He thought if Trinder could confirm that these words were nonsense, it would be clear evidence of a hoax and Ken could go on comfortably suspecting John the guitarist of an elaborate scheme to steal his girlfriend. To Ken's mingled horror and interest, Trinder was fascinated by both the story and the message. He was able to confirm straight away that charge house was an older word for school and was known to be used as far back as the 16th century. Wreathed and bribed stumped him, however, and he asked to keep the printout for a while so he could do a little research. Ken agreed. Encouraged by the fact that Peter Trinder hadn't laughed him out of the room, Ken confided about the troubles at Meadow Cottage to another open-minded friend, John Cummins. This was not the guitarist. John Cummins was a barrister who lived and worked in London, but kept a vacation cottage in the Welsh Hills. John was thrilled by the possibility of ferreting out an especially clever and persistent hoaxer. He came to Meadow Cottage on a Saturday in February, and together with Ken and Deb, they devised a plan to draw out and trap whoever was haunting Ken's house. We'll catch him in the facts, John said. The devil is in the details. We must start with a date, or give some indication of when. Peter Trinder thinks some of the words date to the 16th century, Ken said. Then let's ask him about the 17th century. That might inspire him to offer a timeline of his own, and we'll snare him with the history books. We should ask for details of time and place, then, Ken said. Precisely. Debbie, you take notes. When we all agree that the message is perfect, we'll send it. Here is the message they typed into the BBC Micro. In the reign of Queen Elizabeth II, Dear L.W., Thank you for your message. We are sorry for disturbing you. What would you like us to do? Did you live in a house on this land about 1620? Do you want us to tell you more about our time? Why write a poem? Who is Edward Gray? Is he related to the Egerton family? Do you have a family? Is the King James or Charles Stuart? What is the charge house? Was this village called Dodleston in your life and how many families lived here? Thank you very much for your messages. Thank you for not making us afraid. Ken, Debbie, and John. By the next afternoon, John Cummins was back in his own home, so Ken called him to report on the answer they'd received to their carefully selected questions. 
Deb read the message from the kitchen, and Ken relayed the words, along with their unusual spellings and punctuation, to John, who took notes in his Islington flat. Parenthesis, asterisk. "'Twas an honest farm of oak and stone. It is helpful that you should tell me about thy time. Dost thou hath, parenthesis, question mark, horse? Edmund Gray, brother of John Gray, lives at Kinnerton Hall, parenthesis, question mark. The king, of course, is Henry VIII, who is six and forty. I knew what of King James. Mine charge house is a place of lure, parenthesis, schooling, question mark. L.W., 28 March, Anno 1521, parenthesis, question mark. As soon as Deb had finished reading the file, it vanished from the screen. Ken searched the drive, but there was no sign of it. The message was gone, which he chalked up to some mistake on Deb's part, or a glitch in a shoddy computer. John's plan had proved as smart as John himself was, however. Everyone knew the messages must have been a hoax. The details were all wrong. Henry VIII would have been 30 years old in 1521, not 46. And the parentheses with question marks inside were a modern construction, not a form of punctuation anyone from the 16th century would have used. Just a few days later, Peter Trinder's research seemed to confirm that these messages could only be a hoax. Kinnerton Hall was built in the late 17th century, and he could find no record of anyone named Edmund Gray living in the area in the 1500s or the 1600s. By now, Ken, Deb, and all their friends who knew about the messages were dead set on identifying the culprit and learning how such an elaborate prank had been pulled off. Such a thing might be easily explained in our own time, but in 1985, the internet was only beginning to be built and was confined to a few scientific institutions. There was certainly no possibility for computers to communicate with one another in a place like Dodleston. Someone had to be sneaking into the cottage somehow and typing the messages directly onto the BBC Micro. Determined to solve the mystery once and for all, Ken checked out another computer mid-February and set it up in the kitchen. Everyone agreed the best course of action was to play dumb. Don't call out LW on his historical inaccuracies and grammatical anachronisms. Let him keep spinning this yarn until he'd made enough rope to hang himself. Eventually, some fatal quirk of expression would clue them in, and they'd have their culprit. Ken's money was still on John the guitarist. Around this time, Ken sprang for an old Jaguar coupe as a Christmas present to himself, a much-needed spot of cheer in a very perplexing winter. He and Deb went up to Chester to pick up the car, deliberately leaving the micro turned on and locking both doors when they left. When they returned to Meadow Cottage that evening, they found three milk cartons stacked on the kitchen floor, and the computer monitor was glowing with words. A very long message. As a side note, what I'll read from here on out of LW's messages are translations made by Peter Trinder from Middle English into Modern English. It would be very difficult to parse the meaning from such long messages if I stuck to the original, so an interpretation will have to do. I've preserved only a few of the message sender's original words when the words themselves are especially pertinent to the story. My goodly friend, I must needs say, how is it that there are many things of which I have no knowledge? It seems to me that if you cannot say why you are in my house, then I can no more help you than if my wits had gone. I have no kinfolk I can tell you about. My wife was taken with the pestilence, and the Lord did take her soul and her unborn son, 
1517. My farm it is humble, but it has a pretty parcel of land. It has red stone footings and clean rushes on the beaten floor. This season I have much to do. I have to sow my barley early for my ale. It is this that is my craft, and which I am best at, I fancy. Also, I have to go to Nantwich to my friend Richard Wishel, whose farm is so great as to allow him a four-year rotation of fallow. I do so envy him. He has much there, but nothing that delights me more than his cheese. It cannot be equaled by any other for pleasantness of taste and wholesomeness of digestion. I shall also call it Nantwich Market. It is not so great as Chester Market by the cross, but it is of some interest. I shall need to go to Chester this season to get my shoes. My goodly friend Thomas Aldersay, a tailor by craft, makes them sometimes. I also make shoes, but none of my swine are ready. It is far too costly unless I need to kill one. Do you know the country of Chester? The Watergate is a place that brings many traders. It is a shame the port does shrink. I can remember great ships. Now they get smaller by each tide, but Chesterport is still greater than that of Liverpool. I am so often to the east wall of Chester, Cow Lane. It's not so tiresome there than by the cross. That is, when my fowl or swine do not trip up my poor body. I hear tell that you are a teacher at Howarden. Do you mean Hordine? Do you still earn the great sum of twenty pounds per year? Parenthesis question mark. I remember my unpleasant dean, Henry Mann, who is likened to a fish. If any boy shall appear naturally averse to learning after fair trial, he shall be expelled elsewhere, lest, like a drone, he should devour the bee's honey. Nay, I cannot make merry on holy day for fear of my life. My friend was once a fluting on a holy day, and did have his ears pinned to the wood block. I think when you say Doddleston, you mean Duddleston. My queen, of course, is Catherine Parr. Lucas. Now they had something to work with, all right. Plenty of names to check against historical records, including the name of the message sender himself, Lucas. There were red sandstone blocks piled in the garden. They'd been dug up during the construction work when the kitchen and bathroom were added on and had originally lain parallel to the brick pillar around which the stacking activity seemed to be focused. But any prowler could see the old sandstone bricks in the garden, so this detail couldn't be counted as proof that Lucas was real. They all agreed that Ken should continue bringing a micro home every weekend, and sooner or later, persistence would expose the responsible party. Peter Trinder had traced several unusual words to the 16th century, though he was still puzzled by the modern punctuation. However, he'd noticed that some of Lucas's dialect was distinctly of Bristol origin, at the southern end of the Welsh borderlands, rather than Dodleston's north. He asked Ken to include questions about Bristol in his next message to Lucas. The exact message Ken sent has been lost, but not Lucas's answer. My good friend, can you tell me for what reason you are asking many questions which I cannot understand? I am confused. The writing machine is a wonderful thing, somewhat unnatural, I fancy. Unknown to myself it may be, but I have seen you make leams on the boist and you are sly. Yes, I know of Bristol. My kinfolk did come from Bridgewater and Taunton by the River Tone until they died. To make merry, I like to be at the ale. Yes, sometimes I use the bridge at Aldford. Your merry-making pleases me, but it is rather noisy at times. Will you tell your woman to play more of the flute thing? Tis a pleasant sound, I think. 
How do you travel to your school in Howarden? Parenthesis question mark. I must hurry as my dogs are loose and are being troublesome to my fowl. Lucas Wayneman. The message stunned them all. Lucas, whoever he really was, was claiming to be able to hear the sounds Ken and Deb made in Meadow Cottage, including Deb's saxophone, which he called the flute thing. Ken and Deb rushed up to Chester, to the city library, where a librarian was a little bemused by their request. Someone else had recently been in to research the history of the Dodleston area. More evidence of a hoax. Yet, when Ken and Deb searched all the reference materials pertaining to Dodleston, they found none of the details conveyed in Lucas's messages. There has to be some way of proving it's all a fake, Deb said. We'll have to wait up and catch the intruder. It's John, Ken said. It's got to be. And I'm getting tired of it. Come on, let's go home. About a week later, John Cummins, the lawyer, not the guitarist, asked Ken and Deb to come for a visit to his flat in London. They needed the distraction and change of scenery, so they both took off work and made the long drive, planning to stay for a few days. John had recently devoured Poltergeist, A Study in Destructive Haunting, a book by Colin Wilson, the renowned writer on all subjects pertaining to the occult and the paranormal. It's uncanny, John said. Everything you've experienced at Meadow Cottage lines up exactly with the studies in this book. You must read it, Ken. I think you've got a poltergeist on your hands. Ken listened to John's excited recitation of poltergeist activity. Everything did seem to fit. Objects moving under their own power, unexplained noises, scribbles on the walls, and the distinctive stacking of items. Dodleston was even near a supposed ley line, assumed by some to be invisible currents of earth energy from which certain paranormal phenomena are thought to draw power. Everything matched up except for the messages. There was no explanation for those in Colin Wilson's book, and Ken was unmoved from his presumption that he was dealing with a hoax. By late February, the strange activity was escalating. No longer occurring only when Deb and Ken were asleep or out of the house, now they would leave the kitchen and return minutes later to find items stacked near the brick pillar. The footprints came and went from the wall, as did inexplicable chalk marks, too large and deliberate looking to be scuffs of plaster dust. Deb began looking for a place of her own to rent. The strain was becoming unbearable. One day, Ken left work early and entered the cottage to find it in a shocking state. A newspaper had been gutted, its pages scattered around the living room. Several odd objects, including a mug and a wool scarf, were snugged up against the kitchen door as if they'd been pulled there by a magnet. In the kitchen, pans and other tools had fallen from their hooks on the walls. In the middle of the kitchen floor, apparently swept from the windowsill where it was normally kept, lay the paper cover to the floppy disk that held Lucas's messages. The disk itself lay in the center of the kitchen table, where the computer usually sat. Deb had labeled the disc Lucas W., and Ken stood staring at that name, at the disarray of his kitchen, with one clear thought in his mind. Lucas wanted the computer back. There was more he wanted to say. The 
The incident with a floppy disk spooked Ken enough that he and Debbie took to staying overnight, each night, at a friend's house. But they set up the computer on the kitchen table and locked the doors and waited to learn what Lucas had to say. They soon received another message. My most noble friend, have I not been friendly toward you? And yet, unless I am mistaken, I think there is not enough trust. Despite this, I have been open with you. I know not whence you came, nor whither you will go, nor have I an answer for why you were in my house. But you are a goodly visitor, and you may stay as long as you like. Deb and Ken stared at one another. They were in Lucas's house? They, they were haunting him? The message continued. My pleasant fool, my servant, thinks that you are all in my head. He says I act like a seer, but I know you live now. He also says that my blood is poisoned and that it is my weak-hinged imagination, but I am not mad, I think, and I told him so. I also said it is like fairy gold and that he should keep it secret until I write a book. Slowly they wrapped their heads around this astonishing prospect. What seemed to be happening here, at least what the hoaxer seemed to be trying to convince them of, was that they and Lucas were somehow communicating with one another in their own respective times. Lucas wasn't a ghost. He was a living man, as alive as Ken and Deb were. And somehow, the 400 years that separated them had condensed into a point devoid of meaning. Time had ceased to flow in a linear direction. Lucas's message continued. I came to settle here because of the excellent pasture for which at one time I had to pay no tax, unlike my relations. Now things have changed, for the unfavorable king's sheriff does plague me so that it seems he is here every hour. I have had some mishaps with your hidden device, which does not place my words, but it is no more undone. I think it is too agreeable for me at times, but it does amuse me. So Lucas was communicating with them by means of some device, and he was having trouble with it. It wasn't recording his words properly. Did he type on it then, as Ken and Deb typed into their word processor? I fish for herrings and salmon in the D, Lucas's message went on, and sometimes Fluker's Brook. Tell the friend John with whom you spoke that I know much about fishing. I think you are jesting when you talk about the horseless cart tiger. It is good that we can be carefree and joke like this. Lucas. The horseless cart tiger was a reference to a previous message Ken had sent, an attempt to explain how transportation worked in 1985. Ken had said that he drove a jaguar and explained that the name came from a kind of big cat, rather like a lion or a tiger. Why did Lucas refer to a concealed device? The BBC Micro wasn't hidden, it was right out in the open. And Fluker's Brook was no place to fish, it was a muddy trickle that mostly ran underground. Despite that obvious inaccuracy, something about this message in particular struck Ken as significant. Somehow more real than the others had been. It was the detail about Lucas having technical difficulties. It was just so human, so ordinary. Not the kind of detail a hoaxer seemed likely to put into a message. He replied to Lucas the same day, doing his best to explain how cars worked. He even cut a picture of a Jaguar coupe from a magazine, similar to the model he drove, and left it beside the computer. The next day, Ken received a startling reply. Mine goodly friend, I have found your picture of the cart, but it is a crude thing, for without the horse it shall not go far. 
Pray, what uncouth wood is this? It is like silk. I cannot describe it better. Lucas was referring to the texture of the magazine picture which Ken had left for him. Ken picked up the clipping of the jaguar which still lay where he'd left it. The edges were singed as if by a flame. Pieces of it crumbled in his fingers. Remembering the melted plastic on the kitchen floor months ago, Ken shuddered. It wasn't only time that had condensed to a meaningless point inside Meadow Cottage. Space had done it, too. Ken had been out of the house when the message had arrived, but Deb had been upstairs. He knew Deb couldn't be responsible for any hoax, and she'd often been out with him when the messages and stacking occurred, though the possibility that this was a hoax was receding from Ken's incredulous mind. Another message from Lucas offered more details of his life. He said he'd studied at Jesus College at Oxford, that his best subjects were Latin and Greek. He gave the names of schoolmasters some of the texts he'd read in school, he gave the name of the king's sheriff who was plaguing him over unpaid taxes. In response to a previous question Ken and Deb had asked, Lucas admitted that his favorite thing to eat was something called pumps, with pastry and peas, and after consulting with his young cook Catherine, he shared the recipe. It consisted of boiled pork chopped with spices and raisins, rolled into balls, and topped with a sauce made from almond milk and flour. This wealth of new information could be verified or disproven, and yet again, Ken and Deb set to work. Some of the Latin Lucas had scattered throughout his various messages was poor, to say the least. It seemed unlikely that Latin had been his best subject. Peter Trinder debunked the claim about Jesus College, which wasn't founded until the reign of Elizabeth I. A few of the other details seemed plausible, including the era-appropriate recipe, but none of them could get over the error of Jesus College. It just couldn't be true. Ken, however, couldn't shake this new feeling implanted since the incident with the charred magazine clipping that he was communicating not with a human hoaxer but with a genuinely unexplained phenomenon. He began devising tests of his own. Noting that the last message had come through while Deb was in the house, but he was not, he asked Deb to stay in while he went out. After all, if the messages were somehow related to poltergeist activity, Deb might be an important conduit. Ken had learned from his friend John Cummins that poltergeist activity most often occurs in the presence of young people, especially young women, between the ages of 12 and 19. He decided not to point out any of Lucas's many errors, but to allow the communications to continue. He left a message for Lucas describing how utterly strange he found their circumstances to be. The reply from Lucas arrived right on cue after Ken vacated the cottage. My friend, I must again say that I have no wish to cause you discomfort. I am not easy myself when I have communication with you, but tis so that we are friendly and have intelligence enough to recognize that fools or drunks we are not. And tis, if not for yours, my material for my book, I think. You know now of Bealful, full of good, goodly, unless I mistake. My cook says I shall repent of my adventure and that it will come to a foul end but I think she is jealous and told her so. She does not like another woman in my home, and not one as fair as your maid, I fancy. The red book is strange. What material is it? And the key is strange also. Whose handwriting is it in the book, I pray? You have many books, but I fear they are too badly written. Tell me where the boist came from and how it makes the leams. 
I have so many questions. Tell me more about your world, Lucas. The belated information about the word bealful was an answer to a question Deb had asked some two weeks before. Lucas's question about a red book could only refer to the plastic folder in which Ken kept the dot matrix printouts of Lucas's own messages. The key must have referred to a key that dangled from a cupboard handle across the house. So Lucas was walking around the place, investigating. Most of all, Ken was fascinated and mystified by the words boist and leams. In consultation with Peter Trinder, he learned that the words mean, respectively, box and lights. Whatever writing device Lucas had on his end in his reality, he thought of it as a box of lights. Sensing something of a language barrier between them and hoping to ease that difficulty, Ken took to writing his messages in the closest approximation he could make to Lucas's dialect. In answer, Ken wrote, In your time you use the strength of horses to till the fields, the power of the wind to move the sails of ships, and the moving water to turn the mill wheel. We have many new powers, none of them made by the devil. All are made by man. The lights are wondrous, but the power is not a flame, but something called electricity. If you see strange strands joined to the script device, these carry the electricity. The electricity is made many miles away and brought by strands of wires carefully wrapped to keep the power safe, for it can kill if interfered with by fools. By now, Ken was beginning to hear disembodied footsteps moving around the cottage as if in response to his anxieties about Lucas walking around. He allowed himself to feel the creepy, spooked sensation he'd so doggedly kept at bay all these months since the haunting began. The more certain he became that this was no hoax, the more he began to fear what he so obviously couldn't explain. Lucas's answer arrived. It seemed Lucas, too, was now feeling a reflection of Ken's own fears. My friend, pray, what strange demon are you? I am so confused. You are goodly, I feel, but your lies frighten me much. You said you are alive, but this is not so. I have no wish to accuse you, but you said also that you are an educated man, and that you know of my friend Erasmus, but you do not mention my misspelt words. If you were alive, you would say that you know not of Jesus' college. You also spoke of a power which I have no knowledge. Where does this power come from, and what did you study in your place of learning? Where is it? Because if you do not explain this to me, then I must make an end to my words with you. This would cause me much despair. It is not I that make you afraid. It is you that makes me afraid. Lucas. So, that explained all the errors and inconsistencies. Lucas had been running tests of his own, deliberately sowing misinformation into his messages in an attempt to ferret out the truth from Ken. And Ken, unwitting, unaware, and unable to help it, was haunting the poor man's house. Lucas had been very patient, very open-minded, and now Ken wanted to extend friendship. The mystery of what the hell was happening in his own house swelled to become the focal point of his life. He was acutely aware that he must not frighten Lucas any more than he could help. He must make clear overtures of friendship and finally get the truth of Lucas's reality, not the veiled half-truths Lucas had used to protect himself. For surely, in Lucas's time and place, even considering that he was a well-educated man, the most likely explanation for Ken and his box of lights would be the devil.
Ken wrote back, admitting that he'd noted all the errors in Lucas's messages, but that he and Deb had been trying to catch Lucas out in a prank, just as Lucas was trying to do to them. He tried to explain what electricity was and how it was supplied to the cottage. Lucas's reply came the next day. He was intensely interested in Peter Trinder, presumably because Trinder had also been educated at Oxford. My good friend, will you dispel my doubts in the last message? I was somewhat confused. Your friend from Oxford does much writing in the Red Book. Pray, what does he say? It is unknown to me, but he uses some of my words. Does he come from my time? Tis true about my life. It was just a joke. My Latin is not so bad as that, and I know much about my most worthy Erasmus's books. He was a most knowledgeable man for whom I had much love, and he spoke much wisdom on the frivolous and misgoverned ways of the Christian doctrine. I think he has opened many eyes to such so-called learned men when he was given his appointment in Greek. I began my time at Brasenose College, Oxford, not Jesus College. As I said, in all manner of things, Erasmus's best must be colloquia, than which I know no better. My cook Catherine asks, what is your most tasty meal and how you make it? My shoes are made of swineskin and sheep's coat. I have eight pigs and sixteen fowl. I tan the pigskin, cut the skin, then shape and sew it together and put the sheep's coat and herbs in them to keep my feet healthy. I must go out. Time is moving on. And there followed a Latin quotation which translates to, What do you have to know about my sayings? You read this, my Latin is not as useful. Lucas's assumption that Trinder was from his own time fascinated Ken and Deb. They realized that Lucas had come to accept this strange arrangement as proof that their two distinct physical worlds somehow coexisted side by side, as if time were only relative. Lucas seemed to perceive a certain permeability in the barrier between their realities. Perhaps his very belief in the ability to permeate that barrier allowed him to do it in fact, to handle objects that existed in the Meadow Cottage of 1985, albeit with thermodynamic consequences. In mid-March, Ken and Debbie traveled to Howarden to meet with Peter Trinder. The trio were now deeply invested in the mystery and set out to develop a framework for ongoing investigation. The first item on their list rule out, once and for all, the possibility of a hoax. To do so, three conditions must be definitively met. First, some credible witnesses had to know exactly where both Ken and Deb were when a message arrived, and should be able to vouch absolutely that neither Ken nor Deb had touched the computer. Deb asked her mother and brother to volunteer as watchers. Second, the trio needed to secure external validation of what they were witnessing. Perhaps there was some angle they'd overlooked, but more experienced researchers might find it. Trinder decided to enlist the help of the Society for Psychical Research, which had investigated some of Britain's most famous hauntings and debunked a good many of them. Third, they would have to ensure absolute security of the cottage. Doors constantly locked, windows impossible to open from the outside. That duty fell on Ken. When they returned to Dodleston, there were two more messages from Lucas. The first appeared to be an addendum clarifying some of the claims he'd made about his association with the famous controversial 16th century philosopher Erasmus. Lucas seemed most anxious to prove that he had indeed had some acquaintance with Erasmus. It wasn't an empty brag. He described the philosopher's physical appearance in detail and what he knew of the man's private history and personality, including that he'd recently died in Switzerland. 
The second message was addressed directly to Deb and could only be called flirtatious. It seemed, now that Lucas had come clean about his intentionally misleading messages, his confidence was growing. My goodly woman, you are well-schooled, I think, for a woman, but rather a tomboy in some way. I do not wish to be offensive to yourself, for you are a most perfect partner that would satisfy any man, but you must know your place and serve my friend well. Next you will say you have a cart, tiger, or can travel on some unnatural bird. Please ask your man if I can have words with the man you call Peter, for I may speak with him in my own language. It is difficult to read the words you write. Then we can have more understanding of one another and our times. That night, when Ken went out on some errand, Deb was left alone in the house. She was still rather afraid to be at Meadow Cottage on her own, not because Lucas's messages felt threatening, but because the general atmosphere of the place felt so strange. She'd taken to keeping the kitchen door bolted shut while she was home alone, and on that night she heard a tapping on the kitchen door from the other side. Screwing up her courage, Deb went to the door and peeked under its lower edge. No feet moved in the kitchen. She opened the door, hoping she might finally catch the hoaxer, but the room was empty. She made a cup of coffee and returned to the living room, bolting the kitchen shut behind her. As she sat on the couch, a prickly chill enveloped her left side. Something tugged at her hair. Only my collar, Deb thought, and brushed her hair away. But the tugging came again, four times in succession. Next, the pressure of a hand on her left shoulder, squeezing. There was nothing there, no one beside her. Deb left her coffee untouched and ran from the cottage. She stood outside in the cold rain until Ken returned. Ken wrote back to Lucas, assuring him that Peter Trinder would soon join the conversation. He left another picture beside the computer and asked a series of questions suggested by Trinder and designed to verify that they were speaking with an authentic person of the 16th century. Lucas's answers arrived promptly and did confirm historic details of daily life, such as where the bathroom facilities, such as they were, would have been located. The picture had vanished, Lucas claiming he was going to include it in the book he was writing about this strange experience. Ken had asked Lucas to explain the word antic, which he'd used in one of his earliest messages, but Lucas professed not to know the word. Unless, he said, you mean the man who introduced the commuter into your time. Ken had referred to his own Leems Boist as a computer, and Lucas was doing his best to replicate the word. Short messages flew back and forth. Debbie woke from a deep sleep, a nap on the living room couch, and wandered through the kitchen to the bathroom. Still half asleep, she caught a fleeting glimpse of a man in the kitchen, dressed in old-fashioned garb. He vanished in a heartbeat, but there was no doubt in her mind that it was Lucas. The next day, chalk scrawls again appeared on the brick pillar in the kitchen, but when Ken and Deb looked closely, the marks that had first appeared random and looping spelled out Lucas's name. Perhaps invigorated by his project of writing a book, Lucas became more active than ever on his box of lights. Messages arrived in rapid succession and several times a day. One arrived addressed to Peter Trinder, asking him to go to Bracenose College and verify what words of wisdom and what portrait hung over the fireplace. Another attempt on Lucas's part to verify details, perhaps. Lucas's enthusiasm was increasing tension in the cottage. 
Ken and Deb often fell to bickering, and their home now held an oppressive air almost all the time. Ken went to visit a friend one day, and Deb remained at the cottage. During an afternoon nap, she had an unsettling dream, disturbing in its stark and vivid nature. In the dream, she was looking into a bright light. White at first, but slowly the color shifted to green, then to violet. Shadows began to form within the light, then shapes. She blinked, trying to clear her eyes, and soon realized she was seeing a room almost like the living room at Meadow Cottage, yet somehow different. Slowly, she understood that her perspective was odd. She was looking at the room from inside the fireplace. She stepped out of the fireplace with the distinct thought that she was Alice in Wonderland, struggling to reach the bottle of pills high on a giant table, far above her head. As she moved into the room, a flicker of motion caught her eye. There was a man staring at her, dressed in old-fashioned clothing. What a strange dream, Deb thought. The man answered as if he'd heard the words inside her head. "'Tis strange indeed, maid." The man had been holding some kind of mallet which he laid on the table. A look of utter confusion was in his eyes. Deb was used to lucid dreaming, but now she felt she was absolutely without control. She grew fearful, and the man tried to speak to her, but she couldn't understand most of the words she could hear. Sometimes his mouth just moved and no sound came. One sharp and clear thought pervaded the experience. Time existed only because Debbie thought about time. She wondered if she had died, and this was some sort of afterlife. In a panic, desperate to return to the world she knew, she retreated to the fireplace. The light flared bright around her, and she sat up on the couch, relieved to know that the experience had only been a dream. Later that evening, a message arrived from Lucas. Late in the daytime, my wassail light waning, yet my eyes were so wakened that they were like to kiss the morning sun when it came. So I did put away my case to make my bed, when I did see a fair maid who did pass. It did so frighten me to see her so suddenly appear. She did catch my sight for a wink, and did cast an eye of care. What be your want, she did ask. But my lips were still, for her fairness did take my breath, and then she did leave my presence. Alone in the dim light, I will not forget her sight, and I pray she keeps the secret and tells no one of that shortest night. Lucas Meanwhile, at Bracenose College, Peter Trinder found no record of a Lucas Wayneman, but he did find the names of some important staff and students who would have been at Bracenose around the same time as Lucas. The records were incomplete, so Lucas's lack of presence there wasn't necessarily a knife in the back of the mystery. Peter returned to report that there was no inscription above the Bracenose fireplace. However, he did find an inscription and a portrait together, but in a different location from what Lucas originally described. He didn't tell Ken or Deb what the inscription read, nor where he'd found it. He hoped Lucas would offer the correction, and Lucas did. I must cover my shame. I made a mistake about the words above the fireplace. It is my poor memory. The words are above the first stairs. Anno Christi, some date, 
et regis Enrique octavi primo nomine divino lincoln prisul coque sutton hanc posu er petrum regis ad imperium primo de luni do you know any of these men roland messenger richard sherwood john smythe john fornby matthew smith ralph bostock robert holmes tom white and tom tipping now peter was all in he believed unshakably the latin inscription was exactly correct and peter had indeed found it above the staircase all right a hoaxer might be familiar with brace nose but it was vanishingly unlikely that a hoaxer could also produce the exact names peter had taken from the historic brace nose rolls god it's real peter said somehow this all has to be real an unprompted message from lucas arrived He'd gone to see a trusted friend, he said, an educated man who'd listened to his story. Lucas's friend thought he was sick in the head and advised him not to tell a soul about this unknown world and these unknown people he thought he was communicating with. If he was suspected of sorcery, it might mean his death. His friend asked Lucas not to write again until he, the friend, came to examine the box of lights. Lucas said to expect another message from him, five days hence. They left him messages of reassurance and friendship, and waited through a long week to hear from him again. About this time, work resumed on the cottage in earnest. Electrical lines had to be updated, which necessitated the use of heavy machinery. Power was restored to the cottage just in time to receive Lucas's expected message, but it was garbled, perhaps because of the disturbed electrical lines. The message was mostly a string of nonsense characters, though some intelligible portions came through. Deb, Ken, and Peter didn't know what to make of that message, but Ken reproduced it faithfully in his book, The Vertical Plane, which documents the entire case. From the perspective of a 21st century reader, this message has the feel of a voice-to-text transcription, an AI-powered listening device putting automatic captions to vocalized words. It seems to depict two people talking over each other, perhaps shouting at the same time, the legible portions say, Commuter thys be, How's it makes mine leams, and John! Whatever technical difficulty the box of lights experienced, it evidently began working soon after, for another message arrived. This one appeared to be dictated by someone other than Lucas. His friend, then, the educated man in whom Lucas had confided. Perhaps the man's name was John, based on the frantic transcription in the previous message, but neither Lucas nor the newcomer gave a name. My good man, I have heard of your griffins, lions, and wondrous possessions, and it is too fantastic to understand, and your people are unnatural, although I have no dread. You are a phantasm of great powers. It is my theory that you are in the future, so you can tell when the king ends his reign and who is to take the crown. How do you cure the people of your time? Is the commuter yours, pray? The fashion of our time is such that I will not give my own name, nor Lucas's true description and name. I beg you forgive me for my delay, for I was uncolted from Stockport in my hurry. A friend. So Lucas wasn't the real name of the mysterious friend from the 1600s. And this newcomer wished to set up a test of sorts, prove that whoever was on the other side of the box of lights was from the future. If Deb and Ken were from the future, they should be able to tell when Henry VIII's reign ended, and this would provide Lucas and his friend with the comfort of proof when the prophesied date arrived. 
It was a clever test, elegant in its simplicity. Ken, however, declined to tell what would happen to the English throne after Henry's death, or when that death would come. Partly this was out of frustration, as they'd spent so much time chasing after Lucas Waneman, a fictitious name. Partly it was out of real concern for Lucas and his friend. The years after Henry's death would see deadly conflict in England, with several years of disruption before Elizabeth I took the throne. For Ken to give details now might cause either man to declare his loyalty to the Catholic Church before it was safe to do so. Instead, Ken offered a safer proof of chronology. He described what had caused the bubonic plague, which still ran through England from time to time, and how to eradicate the disease. His message read, in short, Redesign your towns, burn your flea-infested clothes, and get the cats to work. The following week, the Society for Cyclical Research returned Peter's inquiries. Mr. John Stiles, researcher, called Ken to have a chat. They discussed the possibilities, some of which Ken had already mulled over in great detail. A hoax, of course. Stiles proposed that either Ken or Deb might be subconsciously causing the poltergeist activity, a potential Deb had wondered about herself after her strange dream. Stiles floated the idea that it might be possible to mentally interfere with computers, either intentionally or unconsciously. The SPR had seen some interesting cases that hinted at such a potential, but nothing solid yet. They wanted to investigate Meadow Cottage. Now that the SPR was on board, the trio put their plan into action. Deb's family members arrived to watch her and Ken with unblinking eyes. They set up the computer in its usual spot in the kitchen, Ken typed out a quick note to Lucas, and Deb joined her mother and brother in the living room, where she remained under their careful observation. Eventually, Deb had to use the bathroom, which necessitated passing through the kitchen. Her mother accompanied her partway, remaining beside the computer while Deb was in the bathroom. Deb's mother heard a high-pitched noise from the computer, and told Deb so as she exited the bathroom. Excitedly, Deb pulled up the file while her mother watched. Deb's mother didn't understand everything in the file due to Lucas's dialect, but she did later confirm that the version published in the vertical plane matched the words she recalled from that night. It was a poem, a rather lovelorn poem about a man wandering in search of a woman who'd left him. Following the poem were the prosaic answers to Ken's questions. Later, after her family had gone, Ken asked Deb about the poem. The fact that Lucas seemed more and more to be fixating romantically on Deb had piqued his curiosity. He asked whether Deb had dreamed of Lucas again. She had. She told him about the second dream. It had occurred on the day when the power had gone out at the cottage shortly before the garbled message had arrived. In the dream, Deb entered Lucas's house again through the fireplace and found the girl Catherine working in the kitchen, entirely oblivious to Deb's presence. Lucas could see her, however, and greeted her happily, which upset the maid. Catherine was clearly worried about Lucas's mental state. He turned the girl around, trying to force Catherine to see Deb, but the girl couldn't, and the more upset she became, the angrier Lucas grew. Deb tried to get Lucas to stop shouting at the poor girl. Lucas implored Deb to try to pick up a knife on the table. She attempted it, but her hand passed through both knife and table. Deb felt nothing but a tingle in her right arm. This only upset Lucas more. He demanded that Deb show herself, but she had no power over whether she appeared or to whom. She grew disgusted at Lucas, angry that he would abuse his servant so. 
Catherine ran from the room, and Deb made some accusation at Lucas. She couldn't remember what she said, but Lucas turned away, making a desperate whining sound, and Deb thought he was having a breakdown. She moved closer to try to comfort him, but he pointed to the chimney, a clear dismissal. Deb went to the chimney and woke to find herself in her own time beside the fire. By mid-April, SPR was designing their investigation and laying plans to visit Meadow Cottage soon. In anticipation, Ken and Deb sent a friendly message to Lucas and left the cottage, locking it securely. When they returned, there was an answer, but not from Lucas. You are a foolish scoundrel who has brought nothing less than evil upon the wretch. I hope he comes to no harm, for I guarantee your death by my own hand some way. It was not to be avoided with your charm of lights, and now he sits in the shameful dungeon. It will be your own ruin unless you help Lucas. He will die. If you reveal yourselves to the crown for what you are and display your devilish powers, then his life is saved. Reveal the truth and give no false threats and explain what is the need of the commuter, friend. They were astonished and horrified. The message seemed to indicate that Lucas had been thrown in prison for his association with the Box of Lights, with Ken and Deb. Was this new messenger the one they'd called John, the educated man whom Lucas had trusted? They needed more information. Ken sent a reply, again using an approximation of Lucas's dialect. Dear friend, if your time be to come, then that which I have spoken be true. Let Lucas write to me now, so that I might know why he doth suffer. If I am to help, I must know his true call. Ken. His true call meant that Ken wanted to know Lucas's real name. That way they could check historic records and find out whether the man they knew as Lucas really had fallen afoul of the law. But no reply came. They tried again later that day. You have not written, why be this? I would speak with the crown if Lucas be spared. Will you bring Tom Fowlhurst? I cannot show myself, but can write as to what you would know. Where be this pit of shame in which poor Lucas does stay? Whose word sent him there? You have not told me Lucas's true call. I can help little if I do not know. I am no demon. I am a man as mortal as the next, but I am in time to come. I can tell you many things. I can tell how the pestilence comes, and how it can be sometimes avoided, but none of this if Lucas be not spared. I have all the calls of young men at Bracenose, so I shall see that which is untrue. Tell me his true call. Ken. There was no answer to this message either, not until the 21st of April, when Lucas's friend wrote again. I have spoken with the sheriff who says you ask him to come at short notice, but he will come tomorrow. You have asked the name of Lucas Wayneman. For reasons I do not understand, his name is unknown to me. I hasten to ask him this, but he said he could not tell unless it be to your ear alone. He said if this is what it is, to help my friend, then I will hasten to press the matter to him. The sheriff told me that if you can show yourselves for what you are, then you must give the mighty power to him, and he will request pardon of our friend Lucas, and he will beg the king himself to speak with you and your king. This is a thing that the sheriff himself has not had the pleasure of. Now the sheriff wanted the box of lights for himself, and the power to predict the future. How ironic that he'd imprisoned Lucas for the very power the sheriff craved. Ken formulated his reply. Friend of no name, you have said little. 
I would know the call of Lucas, but I can help only through my words. I can tell of many things. These words shall give power to those that have them. You must tell where be this computer. Is it in thy solar? Can all who pass see this device? I will have words one turn of my glass before night tomorrow. While they waited on some answer, Ken and Deb agreed that whatever danger Lucas was in, they could do nothing for him until they figured out exactly what was going on. They had to carry on trying to make sense of whatever was happening, despite their worry for their friend. Frank Davies, an investigator with SPR, arrived that evening to run some experiments. He examined the old messages in printout form, examined the cottage itself. He found it to be an ordinary place with no unusual air of menace. He checked the computer, no messages on it, and sat with Deb and Ken for a while in the living room. Around 8pm, Davies recorded a noticeable drop in temperature. Shortly after, he checked the computer again. A message had arrived alright, from someone who called himself John. It is not right that you ask for my friend's name if you can give no reason for why you are asking. How can it help him? The sheriff does ask that you speak to him in person rather than through the commuter, which he can't see. Otherwise, the commuter must be taken to Lucas in Botton Prison or Nantwich, if he is there now, to show that he spoke the truth. But it is not easy to move the device, as it seems to disappear when any have tried. Only when Lucas is here does it appear solid. I beg a quick reply so I may go to him. How strange... So, the Leem's voice, the box of lights, was solid only in Lucas's presence and couldn't be physically manipulated by John. The sheriff, who had apparently visited the residence, couldn't see the device at all. Ken was willing to talk to the sheriff and explain, but how to do it? He suggested a solution. My goodly friend, thou must listen well. The device cannot be moved. I cannot tell for why, but I love Lucas and would not lie to thee. If my sheriff cannot see the commuter, then bring Lucas to this place so that it shine as solid. Then these things be shown as truths. There is naught to fear, but much to gain if thee follow mine bidding. Lucas is a goodly man who does rot in the pit, but good friends, his crime is unkind to us. We can pass the days in idle talk without fear. Lucas came upon a great mystery as innocent as a child, we are of time to come, men as yourselves. We are not demons or gods, but men who also see this mystery and are confused. This is not a thing to put a goodly man in the pit for. Bring him here and be not afraid, for these words are all that I have the strength to bring before you. Only good can come to all who speak in ways of righteousness to myself. Ken. Nothing. For two long days, no word from John or the sheriff. But on the 23rd of April, to the great relief of Deb and Ken, a message came from Lucas. My good friend, I know not where I can start to describe my misfortunes, but it is so good that I can have your true words once more, which I did not think to hear again. I have thought much of what you said, and about the box of lights, for it is this very matter I fear for my life. The sheriff has forbidden me to leave my house, and I am guarded by the sheriff's men who are at each door, but he agreed that I should be left to myself. There is nothing you can do because I have communicated with your time, and here are the consequences. 
I think we are a history book that has its front and back pages joined together. We are each a side of it. The Boist comes not from my time, nor your time, but from God, as it were a guide for some purpose. We are in God's book. I can see what is to come and what has been. You can see only what has been. When your box came, there was a verse on it that said I was not to ask about your unnatural knowledge, for the box of lights will be no more. It was in my language. My fellow Peter could not have done the writing so true as this was. I think you do not know about this? I have told the sheriff that though I have seen you and your sweet maid many times, one cannot speak with them, nor can I either, and never had. But I said you are of strange description and appearance, that it would frighten any man to see you. I told him it is not too wise. Nonetheless, I am still to satisfy his demands before the seventh day. I know not who betrayed me and accused me, but I know you are my true friends for whom I have much love. You would not do this to me and betray the trust we have. I think you know what my fortune is, but I know not what you can do, my goodly friend. There must be some way of your time that can help me from my fate, for I see only the iniquity and cold temper of the law around my neck. You are now my true friends who are my only hope. Yes, I am old, but I have so many questions to ask you for my book, which is all I want before I go to my God. Pray you destroy my writing, for fear the sheriff may ask what I have said to you. Your helpless friend, Lucas. Deb and Ken both felt a terrible responsibility for what had befallen their friend, and yet it was a matter out of their control. They had to try something, whatever they could think of, to help Lucas from their own time. Lucas continued to send despondent messages. He didn't see much hope for himself. His ability to operate the Leem's boist and the sheriff's lust to obtain the device were all that presently kept him alive. He sent one desperate message in particular to Peter Trinder. My fellow Peter, alas, what can be done? I cannot even take your hand before sentence of death. I must have your words before I bid farewell to good Peter. Long live our Oxford! You said your time is 1985. I thought you were also from 2109, like your friend who brought the box of lights, pray. This late-act revelation positively stunned Deb and Ken. Their friend from 2109? What on earth was Lucas talking about? Had he been communicating with not one, but two future timelines? And Lucas had mentioned that his box of lights had initially contained a verse warning of how the device should be properly used, lest it disappear. They too had received a strange poem as an initial message. Ken and Deb stared at one another, afraid to suggest the obvious next move. There was nothing for it. If they were to save Lucas's life, they had to try the implausible, the improbable, maybe the impossible. Ken sat down at the table. His hands trembled as he laid them on the micro's keyboard. He typed out a simple message, short and insistent. Calling 2109. He also sent a brief message of comfort to Lucas, asserting that they knew nothing of anyone from 2109, but confirming that they had received a verse. Lucas replied quickly, Friend, you must reckon for thy verse, for this shall be your help. I can say no more. Another reply followed quickly, a message so markedly different in character that it shook Ken and Deb to their core. 
Ken, Deb, Peter, we are sorry that we can give you only two choices. One, that you either have your predicament explained in such a non-rhyme way that you may have instant understanding, but cause what should not be to happen. Or, two, try to understand that you three have a purpose that shall, in your lifetime, change the face of history. We, 2109, must not affect your thoughts directly, but give you some sort of guidance that will allow room for your own destiny. All we can say is that we are all part of the same God, whatever he, it, parentheses, question mark, is. And that's where I'll leave you until next week, when the mystery of the Dodleston messages will continue. That's it for this week, and thanks as always for tuning in. I'll be back next Wednesday with part two of this story, and we're going to ride this mystery all the way through spooky season. If you'd like to explore the mystery of the Dodleston messages for yourself, check out Ken Webster's book, The Vertical Plane, at your favorite bookseller. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope you'll subscribe on your favorite podcatcher, and if you listen on the Apple Podcasts app, please take a minute to rate and review, since that will scribe upon the algorithm's leans voiced and help me find more curious weirdos like you. I would also appreciate it if you would tell a friend about the podcast. I'd love to see this audience grow, and I need your help to do it. Music included, Toccata and Fugue by Bach in the public domain, as well as Technology Now by Keith Mann field and the following tracks by Kevin McLeod, Spatial Winds, Echoes of Time, Controlled Chaos, and Dark Walk. Sound collage components came from the YouTube channel Friendly Free Sounds. Outro music is Run of the Mardi Gras by Boko, used with permission of Big Crown Records. For more information about this podcast, including socials and ways to contact me, visit futuresaintpod.com. I'm Libby Grant, and until next time, do good magic and make good worlds. <laughs>